This yeah. is how collaboration in medicine is supposed to work. You are supposed to be able to call people and say, I have a question. And they say, great. Welcome to Scrubs and Squats, the podcast where we discuss health and health policy so that you're better prepared to make the decisions that will give you more power over your business, your career, and your life. I'm your host, Tiffany Ryder, professional athlete turned emergency medicine physician associate, health consultant, and benefit strategist. I have nothing to sell you and just ask that if you like what we're doing here, you review this episode and subscribe. Real quick, before we get started, I have to remind you that although I'm a licensed healthcare professional, my ramblings here are just opinions and information and should never be taken as medical advice or as the official views of any affiliated organizations. I believe that primary care providers are the real superheroes and you should check with yours for personalized guidance. All right, on to today's episode. In today's episode, I am talking with surgical PA Leslie Paul about her transition from PA student to neurosurgery, to orthopedic surgery, and the factors that were involved in those transitions. We discuss practices that you can look out for when you're considering accepting any new clinical position. And we also go through some of the telltale signs that may indicate that the environment that you're in is not a good fit for you. So let's go on to the episode. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, so I'm a physician assistant. I have experience in Neurology, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, and general surgery. General surgery is just everything else that's not any of those things. I have been out of school for a couple of years now, and I am passionate about improving workplace culture, identifying burnout, and empowering new APPs to advocate for themselves for better training and mentorship, especially in their first job out of school. I'm married. I have two cats and a dog who will no doubt make an appearance at some point. And outside of work, I really love to cook and hike and spend time outside. I'm so glad that you were able to come on and take the time to talk with us. Last week, we had a burnout expert, and I'm really looking forward to just hearing your experience as a new advanced practice provider, a new PA, practicing in the big world of medicine and here what your experience from transitioning from student life to being a PA has been like. Tell me a little bit about what your background is, what your thoughts were coming into the PA profession, and then, you know, what that transition's been like. Yeah. So I grew up in a science household. My mom is a vet. My sister's a vet. My dad works in immunology and research science. And so I always figured that I would go into a medical field and I really thought I wanted to go to med school. And then when I got to college, I went to a pretty small school and the biology program was pretty tight. You knew everyone there. And so I knew all these people who were older than me and I watched them apply to med school and then leave and go to med school. And I saw how miserable they were. And I thought, maybe that's not what I want to do. And then when I got out of school, I took a couple of years to get clinical hours and to make little money so I could pay for grad school. I was working as a scribe in the emergency room and in an inpatient psych environment. And so I had, especially in the emergency room, had a lot of exposure to the students that came through, both the medical students and the PA students. And I worked with physicians and with PAs and nurse practitioners. And what I saw was the medical students already 
we're so dead and so burnt out and showing up and getting through the day. Whereas the PA students and nurse practitioner students actually seemed like they were still excited to be there. It really turned my brain to the PA route is the route I want to go. I spent a lot of time talking to the PAs in the ER where I worked about it and about their experience and not just their experience in the workplace, but their experience with their education, their experience with debt and their job satisfaction, which of course varies from person to person. But as a whole, it convinced me that I wanted to go to PA school. So that was the route that I went towards. And then grad school is never what you think it's going to be like PA school, sure. school nursing school. I think anyone going in knows it's going to be hard, really hard, but you get through it and you learn a lot and then you get out and suddenly you go from desperate to get into PA school and then yep. desperate to get through PA school and just trying to take in as much as you can. And then all of a sudden you're looking down the barrel six, five, four months to graduation and yep. wondering what you're supposed to be doing with yourself. When we got out of PA school, when we were applying for jobs, the market was very tight and you had to apply to a lot of jobs. You had to talk to a lot of people just to get your foot in the door to maybe get a job, to get an interview. I knew people who had applied to a hundred jobs and I hadn't applied to that many, but I still felt like, how could I have applied to this many jobs and not get a single offer, not get a single yeah. acknowledgement? And um, something that people discount is when you're in these programs, everyone was the best in their class, yes. right? Like all of your peers are used to just winning all the time. Yep. PA school has a way of taking you out of the knees in that respect, right? Where you put forward the amount of effort that you have put forward in order to be successful and you're yep. not as successful as you thought you would be. So you put forward twice as much effort, right? Yep. And somehow you're still not as successful as you thought you would be. Right? <laughs> and there's not the same return on investment in terms of effort put forth. PA school and I imagine in medical school and nursing school as there is in undergrad. Oh. And that is a really tough hurdle, especially for a group of people who are so acclimated to success. And so you've already been beaten to the ground by PA school, but you're finally getting to the end of it. You're getting through, you go to apply for jobs and no one will hire you. Yeah. You're like, have I just made the worst mistake of my entire life in two years and all of my money and all of my future money? into something for which I am not hireable. But I finally started getting job interviews, which was such a relief. And I finally got a job offer in neurology and neurosurgery. That was my first job. I thought that it was the best job offer I could have secured. One, because it was the job offer that I secured. And two, because I still hadn't figured out that there is a way to disconnect what you do and your educational and career success from your self-worth. And I hadn't figured that out yet. And so I got this job that felt really big and important. And I thought, this is it. I've done it. I am a little fresh baby new grad. I know nothing. And yet someone has determined that I am intelligent enough to do this thing. Yeah. Um, and so I immediately latched all of my self-worth onto it. Sure. No one should do that. <laughs> I threw myself into it and I was terrified and excited and absolutely ready for this to be that I would have forever and never leave and just be totally satisfied. Then I got there and it was just as terrifying as I thought it would be. It was really high stress. We worked three 13-hour shifts a week. 
we worked days, nights, weekends, holidays, all mixed in. Every week was different than the one before. So I might work Monday day shift and then Wednesday, Thursday night shift. And then by Sunday, be back on days again. And I had never worked night shift before. Not really, not for any period of time. And so this could be okay. I could try this and figure out how to be successful here. And obviously other people were because there were people at the job who had been there a long time who were doing it. I think initially I had the same experience that everyone else does, which is that it's so much information and it's so overwhelming. And you're just trying to get your feet under you to figure Mm -hmm. out function at this job that you've gotten. Then three months went by, then six months went by, then seven months went by. And I still didn't feel like I had my feet under me. Still felt like I was scrambling every day. Was I functional at work? Yes, apparently. Graduated from the training that they do. I had been taken off probation. My managers were telling me that I was doing a great job, but I felt like I was drowning every Mm -hmm. single day. And uh, there was no point at which I would go into work and think, no, I know how to do this. This this is okay. I'm still learning, but this is okay. I can do this. I started feeling very desperate and very tired of my job and my life and my outlook on things. When I think about it, I think of, you know, an emergency medicine resident. Mm-hmm. I don't think they feel like they know everything they need to know seven months in. I don't think that a surgical resident who's going to be there for seven years knows everything. What was it that was making you feel like this was burnout versus just a learning just regular curve? regular learning curve of job stress. Yeah. So I didn't realize it at the time, I don't think. But looking back, there were three things. One was that I would drive to work in complete silence white knuckled on the steering wheel. I only lived like 25 minutes from that hospital and I would drive to work just nauseous, anxious. And I would leave early to give myself extra time to sit in the parking garage and convince myself to go in. So that was one of the big ones. The second thing was that I felt because of how I was handling it and because of the way that our schedule was structured, I felt like I was always at work, like I lived there. And some of that was the flip-flopping back and forth between days and nights. That even when I was home, I didn't feel like I had any time off. I felt like I was just always preparing for my next shift. And I could never turn my brain off from work. When I was, because I was constantly trying to turn over for the next shift, I was thinking about what had happened before and what was going to greet me when I got back to work for the next shift. The Mm -hmm. third thing was that I was afraid all the time and not afraid in a motivating way, not afraid in a way that made me want to learn more, get better at what I was doing. I was terrified all the time that I was going to get yelled at. I was afraid that I was going to screw something up. I would go home and I would run through everything I had done that day and all of the decisions that I had made and wonder if I had killed someone. And there was no way to know until I went back to work for the next shift. Not only did I spend my mental capacity like preparing to go back to work, but I spent it also preparing to go back to work to face whatever mistake I had made. Yeah. And if I'm understanding this correctly, you're not saying there was some reason to think about it, right? That, That there was any reasonable thought that you had actually made a mistake. It was more of an obsessive process. It was obsessive anxiety over the choices I had made at work. 
and the things sure. that happened. I'd lay in bed in the middle of the night and think about, did I miss a high blood pressure? And is that person going to stroke because I didn't do anything about it? And I was just, I was losing my and I had no quality of life at home. And so I called someone who I really respected and I really thought was going to look at me and say, Leslie, being a new PA is hard, scary, and it's a lot of learning. You need to like dust yourself off and get up and go back to work and toughen up a little bit. Okay. It's a hard field. This is just what it looks like and it's going to get better and keep going one foot in front of the other. I was certain that I was being a wimp and that everyone else was just like managing this better than I was. I called her and I think I talked for about a minute and a half and she interrupted me and she said, Leslie, you need to leave that job. And I am telling you to run, not walk, to find a new job because you are burnt out and you are clearly unhappy and they are asking too much of you, especially as a new grad. They're asking you to risk your license in ways that you should not. And you got to get out. And I was shocked. This is actually one of the nuggets that I took away from my conversation with Tracy. She said, if you have a patient and you do an x-ray and their femur is broken, does it really matter if they got into a motorcycle accident or if they just stepped off of a curb? And the femur broke, right? Like it's still broken. And I thought that was such an interesting analogy to burnout because so many people do it, right? And I know because they're all like, I can't possibly be burnt out. I've only graduated six months ago or I've only been mm-hmm. in the show for three months or what, whatever it is. And we all assume that there's trouble with adjustment or transition or am I pretty happy? Am I puzzle? dumb? Yeah. Maybe I'm just not smart enough for this job. Yeah. And, and I do think that's really the key point is when you get to this point where you're like, well, I just don't know. I'm emotionally exhausted. I'm pessimistic. I'm anxious. I'm detached. I'm having trouble doing the things that I mm-hmm. normally do. The number one thing that people should take home is that's when it's time to ask someone else, right? Yes. To go yes. to your primary care and say, I have something going on. Go to a mentor and say, is this normal? All of these impulses are what gets you out of that position, I feel like. It sounds like that worked really well in your case. Yes. I needed to ask someone. Trusting my own brain to tell me if this was going well was no longer. It was agonizing for me to leave that job. And this is, if we'll go back to that seed that I planted initially about how I had gotten this job. And I thought it was so great. And I attached all of my self-worth to it. Yeah. And the thought of quitting this Mm -hmm. job that I thought was big, right? This is a big job. This was an important job that I had been trusted to have. And if I quit, what did that say about me? And what did that say about like my ability and my worth? as a PA and as a person. And it was a real hit to my ego to assume that I needed to get out. I needed to and do something else. And I had never quit a job before for an emotional reason, right? 
I had left jobs to go to school, but I had never quit a job because I needed to quit the job for my health. And it was really a difficult hurdle for me. And so when I went looking for a new job, I was terrified because the only experience I had job searching was this one where it took six months and feeling injured. I thought maybe I should go do something less. So I applied to this job that I presumed was less, right? In my mind, this was a step down from what I was doing. And to my great shock, they replied immediately. And something (laughs) like two or three weeks after I submitted an application, I had a job offer. Wow. Okay. I didn't know what to do with this. And and then I had to actually decide that I was leaving and actually quit my job, which was just as hard. Yeah. (laughs) as deciding to apply for a job. And it ended up being the best decision I ever could have made. And it took me probably a month at the new job to really settle in and stop looking over my shoulder and stop feeling like I was three seconds from getting yelled at or screwing up or anything like that. And what I realized was that a big reason for that change was the culture of the workplace in general okay. not just the culture of my team yep but the culture of the hospital okay that was so totally different i'd gone from a very paternalistic experience where mm-hmm. the hierarchy was very well enforced and it was made really clear that i was not at the top of the food chain and i was to listen and to do as i was told sure. and take it on the chin basically yeah. When someone was displeased by what I had done. Yeah. And instead, I went to this culture where there was so much accountability. And there was a really high expectation for how people would behave and how they would treat each other. And if you weren't treated well, you was immediately dealt with. And I didn't know how to function. And (laughs) something like my second or third week there, I was on the phone with an attending. And I think they were having a rough day. And something had happened with one of their patients. And I just happened to be the person who was delivering the news to them that something happened. And they went into a little bit of a rant about it. But not, it was not being yelled at. I, it was not a bad interaction. Yeah. But it was clear that they were upset. And so I finished the phone call and said, thank you. And basically, I'll do better next time. (laughs) And my peers at work, the other APPs on my service, caught wind of what had happened and were furious. And I didn't really understand why. And I just brushed it off. We moved on. And I went to a staff meeting a couple weeks later. And my boss looked at me in the middle of this staff meeting in front of all of my peers and Uh said, I understand from some of your peers that you were treated poorly by an attendant. Okay. That you were not treated with respect and fairness and that you had a bad interaction with this attendant. Can you tell me what happened? And I swear to you, I sat there and thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course. Racking my brain 
for this apparently horrific interaction that I'd had. Sure. And I'm thinking, gosh, did I do something that I don't even know about? Like, yeah. Did one of the attendings complain? Yeah. What? <laughs> what? And, it, you know, it, I guess she read the face that I was making that was blank. Yeah. And she reminded me of this phone call that I had. Yeah. And I remember looking around the room at the other APPs and thinking, I don't think you know what it is to be mistreated by an attendant. This wasn't it. I wasn't yelled at. I wasn't made yeah. feel bad. I didn't feel nauseous. I didn't cry. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> bad happened to me. And yet everyone else was offended. And it took me probably a good month or two at this job to realize what was acceptable in terms of how I should be treated at work. And that was a huge, oh my gosh. Yeah. This is yeah. what work is supposed to be like. So I think that's really, I think it's more difficult than it seems, right? Mm -hmm. To crack this puzzle. So this is something that I feel very passionate about and and that I talk a lot about, right? On LinkedIn, on podcasts, where, wherever I am, I'm talking about this. And you know, it's really hard for me to distill it. I can say that the clinical environment in which I work right now just does everything for me emotionally. But when students ask, they say, oh, you know, what should I be looking for when I'm looking for my new job? Like, how do I know what's going on? And there are a couple things that I feel like I can list and I'll tell you what those are in a second, but I'd love to know, looking back over the past several years, were there signs that you could have seen? For me, it's things, and it's hard to explain this in print, so I'm glad that we at least can do this in an audio format. But when, for example, when a, an attending introduces themselves to me, and I've got vomit on my shoes, we're at the coffee machine, I'm not talking about in a patient room or in a board meeting or conference or something. But I'm in the kitchen, we're in our scrubs, and I'm like, hey, I'm Tiffany. I'm the PA that's working over here today. And they say, whatever their name is, I know, right? So my medical director, I won't call him out here, but on a regular basis, I say, hey, doctor, medical director. And he's like, it's my first name. Call me my first name. And I would never do that. I continue to call him doctor and his last name because that is what I am comfortable with. But yes. just that fact that he smiles at me and corrects me and says, Tiffany, my name is this, right? Means that when I'm nervous, when I think I may have made a mistake, when I'm feeling a little in over my head, when I get any of these bubbly feelings of anxiety, mm -hmm. I can go to him and I say, I think I need help. I know that I should know how to read this EKG finding, but I'm just not feeling confident and I mm -hmm. care about my patient. Can you help me? And I know that's a safe space. So I could literally talk for the next 45 minutes about little tiny things like that. Things like being able to go to my colleagues and say, hey, can we switch shifts? We have the same shifts on two different days. Would it be cool if we just switch them? And we're able to do that in our scheduling system without management approval. Because, yeah. because we're adults. So I think that there are small things that you can find out prior to signing your contract that can maybe not <laughs> definitively say this is a healthy workplace culture, but could give you a vibe, even if you don't know anyone. 
Were there things that have been able to isolate that we could we could tell a new PA looking for a job? Watch out for this. Yeah. There were definitely things that I should have asked first time around that I didn't, and I know better now. I think that you should ask about training program and orientation and okay. what kind of things they do to get new grads up to speed in their program. I think you should ask when the last time was that they took a new grad on, if this is something that they normally do, if you are the first new grad they've ever had or the first new grad they've had in a long time, what their retention rate is, how many PAs have left in the last six months, mentorship. Mm -hmm. Is there an opportunity at that job to align yourself with someone who's more experienced and have someone who you can go to with your questions, not your manager, but here, yeah. <laughs> who you can go to and ask oh, all your dumb questions to, right? Yeah. And I think you need to ask about what your avenues are in that workplace for seeking accountability when something goes awry. And what is the structure that they have in place for maintaining a respectful work environment? You should always ask for a shared day to be allowed to spend time with the people who are there on service while they are on service. You see what they do and how they do it and what their workflow is like. Ask them what their relationship is like with their attending and what their interaction is like with the attendings and whether or not they feel comfortable going to their attendings to ask questions, to talk about the patients. Do they have to seek their attendings out or are their attendings readily available to them? Things okay. like that. Because as a new grad, I think you do not want to find yourself in an environment where the only way to get help and guidance yeah. and teaching is if you actively go and beg someone for it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There should be people there who are available mm. to you and who have the time to sure. talk to you and to answer your questions and to teach you about things. Because not every work environment has time. A hundred percent, right? If every time you go ask a question, you're told, well, I'm really busy here. Do I have to manage your patients also? I think that the important thing that is sometimes missed when we talk about this is that in healthcare, an attending disrespecting an AP isn't about that APP's feelings. It's no. not about their ego. It's not mm -hmm. about them wanting to feel nice when they go home. Although mm -hmm. those are respectable things sure. to care about, right? Sure. Those are things that you should think about in your right. quality of life at work. Right. It's about mm -hmm. your patient. It's about the fact that the reason the structure is in place the way that it is in place, where these are told, yes, you may do this big thing with less hands-on experience and training is because the assumption is made that you can go to an attending at any time. I really have a beef with the AMA's new Stop Scope Creep advertising yeah. campaign. I don't care that I'm being insulted. I care that it puts a divide between me and my attending. It makes mm -hmm. me think 
that my attending thinks I'm an idiot, yes. which then makes me less likely to go to my attending and say, I feel like an idiot. Yes. Can you help me? Yes. And so I exactly. think all of this messaging is really working against what we need. And what we need mm -hmm. is, hey, man, there's no question that you've had more experience than I have in this. Yeah. And that you've been taught more things. Yeah. And there's also no question that we are on the same team and we care about our patients. And and I just need some guidance. And then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to write this note, right? I'm still saving time. I'm mm -hmm. still providing great patient care. There's all sorts of benefits to having the AP on board, but it's just you really need a culture that's mm -hmm. accepting and fosters yeah. collaboration. Yes, yes. And not just because I think there is great value in looking it up yourself. Absolutely. Right? If you have a question, utilize a resource. But there are different grades of questions. There is I know what the problem is and I need to choose an antibiotic. And then there is, I have this patient and these things are going on. And I have this little baby undeveloped gut feeling that something is wrong. And I don't know exactly what's wrong. I think maybe I do, but I'm not really sure. And gosh, I don't know what to do about it. And can you please give me some guidance? On one, is that niggling feeling that says, I think something is wrong. Yeah. Right. And two, where do I start? <laughs> right? It's true. But that's what you need a mentor for, right? Sure. I don't need a mentor to tell me what antibiotic to use. My resources can tell me that. I can learn those things in a textbook. I need you to also come and either listen to what I have to say will come and look at this patient and say, yeah, yeah Leslie, that's bad. And, and PA students, new PAs, I would say you go mm -hmm. to them with your little notes and your little paper and you say. Mm -hmm. Prepared. Yeah. Here's my question. Up to date says this. The mm -hmm. pharmacist says this. Here's why I still have a remaining concern. Mm -hmm. This is my thought process and I just mm -hmm. need some guidance. And if you come prepared and your attending is rude or snippy, if they have a pattern of being rude or snippy when you are doing those things, right? Asking questions like, is there a way that I could present to you that would be more comfortable for you or would make this interaction go smooth? And by the time you're getting to this point, you're coming well-prepared, you're asking for feedback and you're still getting garbage. I would say at that point, I'm now looking at is this the right fit for me? Is this the right job for me? Yeah. Is this the right workplace culture? And looking around the room to see if other people are being successful and it's just mm -hmm. me asking a mentor, things like that. Yeah. Definitely. So I want to just cover two more quick things. What has changed for you? So since you've changed jobs and you're in this culture that's much better, what are the things that you've noticed about your job, about your life, about your body, your brain? like? that's working better for you, that says this is a better place for you? Yeah. In terms of outside of work, I go home and I go to sleep. And I don't wake up during the night panicked about work. I sleep all night. All right. And when I wake up in the morning to go to work, I it's early and it's dark outside and I don't really want to wake up because my bed is comfy. 
but I don't dread going to work. I just get up and I go to work and I do my shift and I come home. And uh, 10 hours can be a long day, especially when it turns into actually being 11 hours, yeah. right? And so, you know, there are really hard days still that kick my butt and I get home and I'm exhausted, but I'm not so exhausted that I can't interact with my husband. And I'm not so exhausted that I can't go to bed, wake up, go to work and do it again the next day. Right? I am. I had a long day. I worked hard, but I didn't get stomped and I had support at work. And the workplace side of that is that, you know, I just see my patients without fear of what I'm walking into that room to see. And when I see something that I'm unsure about, I have a really strong peer group at this job and I have people who I can go to and say like, hey, I have this thing. This is what I'm thinking about doing. Does that sound reasonable to you? Or I have this orthopedic patient and uh, gosh, they're bleeding. And can you come look at this and tell me <laughs> how concerned yeah. I need to be? And maybe give me a hand holding some pressure on this. It's nice to have a sounding board. But also the thing that is most special to me about this job is that I know that at any time, even the attendings that I don't have as much interaction with, and I have a question, that they will pick up or at the very least call me back. And you know, they will not make me feel guilty or bad or stupid sure. for calling them and asking a question, yeah. right? They are happy to talk about their patients. They are happy to give me their advice. Sometimes their advice is, you should really call medicine. <laughs> sure. But that's okay. Yeah. Because at no point in that interaction do I have to sit there and gear up to calling them and asking them a question. I still do that. I was at work the other day. We had a resident there and I was standing next to him and he had his computer up with the on-call list. And I said, who's on for whatever specialty I needed? Mm -hmm. They told me. And I went, okay, do you know that person? And he's looking at me like I'm nuts. And yes. he was like, no, I don't know that doctor. And I was like, okay, I'm just trying to figure out if they're going to yell at me. And he was like, why would they yell at you? Right? It was just this, this insane notion. And I was like, oh, I'm at a place where I'm safe. It's okay. You only have to be burned a couple of times when you learn to just be terrified. Yes, and to just be again, afraid all the time. This hurts patient care, right? If you have people that are scared to reach out to the experts. Yes. And you're not incentivized and rewarded. Yes, thank mm -hmm. you for calling and yeah. caring about my patient, but call medicine. Yes. And to be able to have an interaction with an attending who is secure enough in their knowledge to say, yes. wow, that's not a thing I know anything about. You should call medicine. <laughs> I cannot answer that question for you. <laughs> but we can both sit here and agree that that is wrong. Thing is wrong. Yeah. And someone who knows more than we do should help us answer this question. Right. Yeah. And then not only that, but it's not just my service that has this culture, which I think is quite a feat, honestly, to be on an orthopedic service where yeah. I have no fear of calling and attending. They're all really nice and really receptive and they're all really good teachers. And I think this is like a weird situation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it's not just that. It's that I can call any service in the hospital. They will talk to me. 
Yeah. And if they can't talk to me in that moment, they say, hey, you know what? Can you call me back in 10 minutes? And they will come into a consult without giving me an earful about it. And if I don't need a consult, if I just need a little reassurance and I say, hey, listen, I just got a quick question. Can I just curbside you real quick? They're like, yeah, absolutely. Tell me what's going on. They've called cardiologists who are already at home on their couch. I can hear their kids in the background. And I'm like, listen, this thing is happening. And I'm just not sure. And they are so happy to chat with me. And it's such a strange interaction. And yet this is how it's supposed to be. Yeah, This is how collaboration in medicine is supposed to work. You are supposed to be able to call people and say, I have a question. And they say, great. We decided that specialization was the route we were going, right? You can Mm -hmm. argue that if that was the right choice or the wrong choice, but that ship has already sailed. This is the way we do it. But if you're going to have medicine be siloed, there has to be some sort of integration between the silos. Yes. So it sounds like you have found a great place for that. I have. And no workplace is perfect, but especially if you find yourself in an environment that you think is not great for you. Don't let people tell you, like, grass is always greener on the other side, because sometimes it is. So it sounds like you've really done a great job of finding your way out of a situation that was not serving you. I expect that. This is going to resonate with a lot of my listeners who are also either scared to find themselves in that position or are in that position. So if you were going to point them in a direction, are there resources that you'd like to share that would have been helpful to you along the way? So in general, I follow a lot of resources that are kind of motivational that talk about workplace equity, you know, not necessarily focused on medicine, but focused on the workplace in general. There is a group called the Female Lead, and they post a lot of stuff not at all focused on medicine, but focused on women in the workplace and workplace equity and positive messaging about uh, women who are leading in their field, who are doing really cool things. Um, We'll put that in the show notes so that that people can follow. So the Female Lead. And the other one is called I Hate It Here. Okay. (laughs) newsletter put out. Yeah. I a woman named Heba Youssef. Okay. And she talks about how to navigate those unfortunate, sticky situations at work. If you're having conflict with a coworker or if you feel like you're being mistreated at work and how do you navigate that conversation with your coworker? How do you get out of that conflict? How do you Talk to your managers. When and how is it appropriate to get HR involved when something is going on? That is a very good resource as a starting place. And not just that, but she also talks about how to build a good workplace culture. So if you are not the peon trying to figure out how to like find a good place for yourself, if you find yourself in a management role, how do you create a workplace culture that empowers them and makes them want to come to work and makes them want to invest in their job and in your message. And I think that she does a good job talking about all those things too. That's amazing. Yeah. So I'll have to check those out because those are actually new for me as well. Everyone doesn't know this about you, but you were 
more of a traditional student that did undergrad, had a small break, went to graduate school, and then entered the workforce as a young woman, right? This was not a second or third career for you. And sometimes when you're in that position, it's really hard to know because you haven't had 10 jobs to compare. Like what's a reasonable way to be treated? Thank you so much for joining us, Leslie. I'm so excited to have had the conversation with you. I think there was a lot of good stuff here that's going to be really helpful and insightful to people. Good. Glad. Thank you for having me. All right. All right, that is it for today's episode of Scrubs and Squats. I hope you enjoyed. And if you did, please like, review, and subscribe. And we will see you next week.